God, this morning we just want to pray that Ephesians passage over our lives. Lord, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts by the power of your Spirit that we might know what it is, God, that you have done for us through your Son, Jesus Christ, to know the riches of the inheritance that is the saints, to know, God, your power at work in those who believe, that same power that you poured out when you raised Jesus from the dead that is now at work in us. Lord, and we long as our hearts are opened up to see your beauty, to see your goodness, that we might revel in Jesus the same way that Paul does there in Ephesians chapter 1, where we just cry out of his goodness, his greatness, that he is seated high and above, that there's no other name higher than his, that we see it as our greatest delight to praise this Jesus, to worship this Jesus, to exalt this Jesus. God, our hearts get so dull, our hearts get fixed on things that are so insignificant. So this morning as we open your word, we would long for you, long for you to take us deeper, take us into things that matter, show us the realities of eternity. God, fix our eyes on those things that will last forever. Show us what it means to truly, God, to truly walk with you, to have a relationship with you, to worship you. We bow ourselves now before your word. God, we treasure your word. We believe that it is powerful, that it is perfect, that it comes from you and that it transforms our lives. And so we, with eagerness now, with eagerness, Lord, we want to hear what you have to say. Change us. Stretch us. Draw us towards the glory of your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we worship and pray. Amen. In uh, John chapter 3, uh, the book, the, the, the gospel of John chapter 3, Uh, Jesus told a man named Nicodemus that the only way for someone to enter the kingdom of God was for them to be born again. And we get a sense of what Nicodemus was thinking by how he responded to Jesus. Uh, After Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again, Nicodemus responded and said, how can a man be born when he is old. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Because I don't know about you guys, but maybe if we had been there at the very, very first time that you ever heard the phrase born again, probably would have been thinking along the same exact lines as Nicodemus. What is Jesus talking about? So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that when we are born into this world, there is something so fundamentally wrong with us that we actually need to go through some sort of a rebirth experience. We have to be recreated. What you and I need as the default position in our lives is to be rewired from the inside out. Because until we are rewired, until something changes us on the inside, life won't make sense. Uh, a few years ago, I ventured out, you know, base, past the basic, you know, just like hanging things on the walls kind of home improvements uh, in our home, and I moved into the world of electricity, all right? The stakes are much higher. 
my first light switch that I changed out, uh, it took me like six hours. And after it was all done, I mean, I put, poured out blood, sweat, and tears, you know, into this light fixture. I felt like I've, I've done it. Uh, but apparently, obviously, something went wrong. I call Allie into the, into the dining room, and I'm like, this is it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm like ready. And I'm like, I flip on the light switch. And for about 20 seconds, you know, I'm just basking in glory. And then I hear a pop, and the dining room goes dark. I had apparently not attached the, the wires in the correct way. I had miswired this light fixture. And the light fixture would never have worked until I took it apart and rewired it and put it back into the place, the places that it was made to, to flow. Electricity was made to flow. Here's what wouldn't have worked. What wouldn't have worked is if I had just kept trying to put new light bulbs in that broken light fixture, turning it on, hoping that eventually maybe one of those light bulbs would stay on. No, what had to happen was a rewiring, a reworking, that it was, I had to get down deeper to the fundamentals for the light fixture to be fixed. And when Jesus tells us that we must be born again, what he's telling us is that no amount of external tinkering with our lives is actually going to fix us. No amount of education, no amount of environment change, not even better choices better habits, nothing from the external can truly get down into rewiring us to be who God created us to be. No, 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 no. What you and I need is a radical transformation from the inside, a radical rewiring that we might live life the way God originally intended for us to live. And so what it means to become a Christian, this is what it means to become a Christian. It means to have a miraculous rewiring, rebirth, recreation from the inside out that we might actually have a relationship with God, to walk with God, and to enjoy Him with our lives. And so then here's the question that every Christian ought to ask. After I am born again, after I am recreated, after I am rewired, what should life look like? How should I live after I get born again? And this morning, uh, we're actually going to dive back into Psalm 105, where we left off last week. And what we're going to see in Psalm 105 is the picture, the vision of what life is supposed to look like. This is life as God intended it. This is the life we get to live after we are born again. And so I want you to open your Bible to Psalm 105. And this is what we're going to do. Last week, we covered the main middle portion of Psalm 105. But today, we're going to basically look at the, the bread on the sandwich. We're going to look at the, the beginning of the psalm, and we're going to look at the very end of the psalm. And so I'm about to read uh, Psalm 105, verses 1 through 11. And then we're going to skip down to verse 43, and we're going to read 43 through 45. Uh, and then that's where we're going to spend most of our time today. So this is Psalm 105, 111, and then 43 through 45. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. 
Seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that He has done, His miracles and the judgments He uttered, O offspring of Abraham, His servants, children of Jacob, His chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers His covenant forever, the word that He commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that He made with Abraham, His sworn promise to Isaac, when He confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. Then skipping down to verse 43. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. This is God's word to us today. Uh, The question last week from Psalm 105 was this, how do we get to heaven? How do we get to heaven? It was all about God. It was all about what God does to rescue sinners. It was all about God coming in and graciously bringing people back into the place that he has prepared for them to live in his presence forever. Uh, We looked at how the answer to how do we get to heaven. First, we looked at a guy named Abraham, and we saw that the way that God gets us to heaven is by grace. That you and I are going to make all kinds of mistakes. We're going to sin our way all the way to heaven. But God is going to continue to lovingly care for us and graciously protect us from ourselves as he brings us safely home. And then we looked at a guy named Joseph. And we saw how Joseph's story did not take the path that you and I typically like to go. Joseph went down first, but then in a sovereign reversal, God brought him up to the height of heights. What we learn from that is that you and I are the same way. Our lives, our path to heaven will probably go down first, but then, just like with Jesus, we will be raised and seated at the right hand of God. And then we looked at the Exodus with Moses. We looked at how God brought his people out of, of Egypt. They were in bondage. They were in slavery. And we said, hey, you and I, we are in slavery as well. We are in slavery to sin. We are in slavery to death. We are in slavery to Satan. But we saw that God brings us to heaven through a miraculous deliverance. Through the life, death, and resurrection of his son Jesus, he brings us out of bondage. And then we saw through the wilderness wandering that after God brought his people out of of Egypt, they were in a place where they had no needs met. They were desperate. They were in a terrible situation. They had no food, no water. And so what did God do? God provided everything they needed. In fact, that even though though they weren't yet in the promised land, God brought the promised land to them. And so that even, even though you and I aren't in heaven yet, God brings heaven to us. And so last week was all about God. It was all about his grace. It was all about what he does for us. But we said last week that the question this week would be then, how should we respond? When God rescues sinners, when God rewires us, when God brings us safely out by his grace, how should we live? And really this morning, we're just going to look at two overarching things. And so in light of who this great God is, in light of what he's done for us, how should we live? First, this morning, we live the life of faith. We live the life of faith. Um, Life is difficult, guys. You know that, right? Life is difficult, and you and I are going to put our trust in something. But here's the problem. Before God rewires us, we constantly put our trust in things that are not trustworthy. We have the capacity for faith. Every human being has the capacity for faith, but before we are born again, we keep putting our faith in the wrong things. 
And so let me just ask you this morning, what is putting pressure on your life? What is testing you? Uh, maybe it's your own bad decisions. Maybe there's certain circumstances in, there, in your life that just feel out of your control. Maybe you've been met with the grim reality of death. For all of us, there's something that's putting pressure on our lives. And what we need in those moments of pressure is something that will hold, something that we can trust, something that we can put our faith in that won't let us down. And Psalm 105 that we're going to see this morning, it, it describes a life of faith in a few different ways. For example, in verse 1, in verse 1 we learn that the life of faith means that we call upon his name. It very clearly says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is, or excuse me, that's Psalm 106. <laughs> oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. So the life of faith means to call upon his name. Uh, when, do, when do people call upon others? For example, I think about uh, you know, all the billboards that are all over town that have different lawyers' phone numbers sort of plastered all over them, right? And these lawyers, they try to advertise uh, you know, that they can help you by maybe putting up like how many Google reviews they have. Or maybe they'll put up, hey, they were able to award such and such amount of per money to some person for something. In, in, a, in a sense, these billboards are saying, when you're in trouble, I'm here to help. When you're in trouble, you can trust me, so call upon my name. And so what it means for us to call upon God's name is to believe that in every single situation that we find ourselves in, God is always the one who has the answer to the problem that we're facing. We call upon his name because he hears us. We call upon his name because he's trustworthy. We call upon his name because, guys, that is what children do when they need help. They call out to mom and dad because mom and dad are stronger. Mom and dad have proven that they can help Mom and dad have proven that they love the children, and so this is what kids do. We call out for help to our Father in heaven. Uh, when I was in high school, I uh, took a shop class, and uh, the main sort of end-of-the-year uh, project is that we had to partner up with somebody in the class, and we had to build this little model bridge. And so we spent a few weeks kind of preparing our model, preparing you know, the, the physics of it all, of all and everything like that, and then the idea was at the end of the semester, we would have a test in the class. It was sort of like a competition. And every single person's bridge would have a certain amount of weight put on it. And whoever's bridge held up under the most amount of weight was the winner of the competition. So needless to say, every single person's bridge ended up cracking at some point in the experiment. Right? What is this? Why would you do a test like this? Well, you would call this the test of integrity. The test of integrity. Will it hold under pressure? Will it hold when life's weight is put on it? What we looked at last week from the middle of Psalm 105, it was essentially a test of God's integrity. Will God still be faithful to me even when I make big mistakes? When I sin, when I turn away from him, does that mean he's now going to turn away from me? We saw that from the life of Abraham. And what we saw is that our sins cannot outpressure his grace. God is trustworthy even through our failures. And then when we looked at the life of Joseph, we, we learned that the crazy situations that you and I find ourselves in where a lot of times our lives seem to be going, getting worse and worse and worse and worse. 
that our terrible situations actually can't outpressure God's sovereignty. That if he's promised to get us safe to heaven, then even if it seems we're going down, 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 God has a plan to raise us up with Christ. And then we looked at the Exodus, right? We looked at the, uh, this is honestly the biggest pressure of life of all, which is our sin and enslavement to death. We are stuck. There is nothing we can do about it. We are all headed to that same final end. And so what we saw is that God, our bondage, the things that enslave us, they don't outpressure God's saving power, that he is able to raise the dead. And then we saw through the wilderness wandering, guys, this is, let's be honest, this is the pressure we probably all feel most, <laughs> that it just feels like we're in a dry and weary place. It just feels like we just can't quite get what we need to thrive. We know we are not in heaven yet, and we feel it. And what we saw is that our neediness, our constant neediness, does not outpressure God's daily provision. This God, he is trustworthy even through, even through our dire circumstances. He gives us what we need. And so I don't know what pressure's in your life. I don't know what's putting stress on you. I don't know what's testing you. But this is what we learn. The only thing that will not crack under the pressures of life is God himself. That he stands under the test of integrity. That everything else, everything else will crumble. But there's this God who is faithful. And so the life of faith means we call out to him. We call out to that one because his faithfulness is perfect. He won't fail. He won't crack. He has infinite integrity. Hebrews 4.16 says it like this. It says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So see, guys, God rewires us. When we get born again, we are rewired now to no longer put our trust in things that aren't trustworthy, to no longer put our faith in things that are not faithful. We are rewired now to call out to God to run into his presence, to seek grace and mercy from him in our time of need. And what we learn is that he will give it. He's trustworthy. He's faithful. And so in a sense, it shouldn't surprise us then that if calling upon God's name is what the life of faith looks like, it shouldn't surprise us that calling upon his name is how the life of faith begins. That at some point in our lives, we come to this place where we realize that we are broken, that something's not working. And God in his grace, he brings us to the place where we're able to finally put our finger on what that is. <laughs> and it is that we don't have a relationship with him We've turned away from him. We've tried to live our lives without him. And guys, you want to talk about pressure, the pressure of life that pulls on us. There is no greater pressure than one day having to stand before God's judgment throne, than one day having to give an account for our lives, to be tested under his judgment, which is a perfect judgment. And because God loves us, because he cares about us, he actually brings moments of that judgment into our lives now where we feel that we are undone. We realize that we stand condemned under his justice. We realize that it won't cut it to offer our half-rate goodness and righteousness to him on the final judgment day. 
And so what is there to do? God draws our attention to his son Jesus. He shows us that, yes, while we stand condemned, he sent his son to come and live and die for sinners like us. And then Romans 10.13 tells us this. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Calling on the name of Jesus is the beginning of the Christian life. It is us saying, from the very, from the very beginning, saying, I need something outside of myself to save me. I need someone outside of myself to rescue me. I need someone outside of myself who is bigger and better and more righteous and has lived a perfect life to come in and save me because I can't save myself. And then after, after we experience that first moment of honest calling out to Jesus, it just sets us up for a life of calling out to Jesus. That if the, that if the, li- that if the beginning of the Christian life is calling out to him, then it makes sense that the ongoing everyday life of faith in Jesus is to call upon his name for everything that we need. And I think that's why here in verse 4, we see that the life of faith means that we receive strength from this God. Uh, look at it there. It says, seek the Lord in his strength. See, if we're, if we're being called to look outside of ourselves, to call outside of ourselves for help, then it makes sense that we would receive our strength from this God. Uh, there are different sources of strength and energy that we all look to for life, right? Um, we all like to get things done. We all like to feel good about our lives. And so, so we look to different sources of strength and energy. Think about, for example, just something as basic as the food we eat, uh, as the sleep we need, uh, or maybe it's even just the people we spend time around. I don't, know, I don't know what your life is like. I don't know what you do all week long, but maybe you're the kind of person that like you work with people all week long and you're just constantly bombarded by people. And so when you get to the weekend, you're like, yo, I just need a break. I just need to stay home close the door, turn the lights off, and for a few hours, I just need to rest. I just need to be by myself. But then some of you are the total opposite. All week, you sit in a little cubicle, and you don't see anybody all week, and when the weekend comes, all you want to do is just be around people, be around your family, be around your friends. Why? Because you want to be refueled. You want to have strength again. And what, we're, what we see about the life of faith is that the life of faith rewires us, rewires us, to seek our strength from God. We no longer ultimately seek our strength from things that fizzle out, but we seek our strength from the infinite source, who is God himself. But I don't know about you, sometimes you hear that. Uh, we sang it this morning in one of our songs, that, you know, my strength is in God, my strength is in Jesus. But sometimes you wonder, what does that actually mean? And so here's a few ways to think about this. Uh, one of the ways that we, we find our strength in God is simply by finding our strength in the confidence that we have in him. That no matter what's going on around us, no matter what kind of crazy situation we find ourselves in, that we know his plan will play out in the world, and we know that nothing can separate us from his love. And simply having that confidence in him gives us strength. Uh, Another thing that we see in the Bible is that uh, we receive strength from the joy that we have in God. The Bible tells us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. right? We, We sort of intuitively know this. When your team wins the game... You get filled with energy. When you've been working hard on something for a long time and you finally complete it, you get filled with energy. When you're around people who make you laugh and who light you up and, and who you know, are able to you know, crackle you up, I mean, you, you feel refreshed again. And so what we see is that we actually find strength 
in the joy that we receive from God. And so then what that fundamentally means is that we ultimately receive strength from spending time with God. That we actually have to be in His presence so that He might lift us. Before we've spent time with God, we're weary, we're downcast, we're burdened. We go into God's presence. We actually set aside special time to engage with the Lord, to read His Word, to pour our hearts out in prayer. And we come out refreshed. We come out rejuvenated. We come out ready to live life. But then I think there's maybe one other way that we receive strength from God that's sometimes easy to forget. And, you know, if there's anything we learned as we work through the, the big middle portion of Psalm 105 last week, is that God is behind the scenes actually working invisible power on behalf of his people all the time. God is pouring out miracles from heaven. God is opening doors that we never thought he would have opened. God is changing the hearts of people that we could have never changed. God is pouring out his real, actual, changing power in our lives all the time. And that's why something like Psalm 20, uh, 127 one could tell us this. Listen how helpful this is. Psalm 127.1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, all that work that you and I are trying to do, all that energy that we're trying to go after in our own strength, all the things that we're trying to do with our lives to accomplish them, it's all worthless. And so that means when it comes to our parenting, we, we try to raise our kids in God's strength, trusting that we are just doing the best we can, but we trust Him to truly build the house. Whatever area of your life, whether it's, maybe it just might be obeying God's commands, maybe it might be some influence that you want to have at your workplace or in the world, we trust God's strength, God's power, that unless He is the one building the house all our energy is just spinning our wheels. Uh, the life of faith means that we have the privilege of having fuel that this world doesn't know anything about. We have a resource of power available to us that comes from God himself, the limitless one. And then I think it's so helpful here in verse 5. Uh, we learn that the life of faith means that we remember his works. We remember his works. Uh, verse 5 says, remember the wondrous work that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he, uh, he uttered. Guys, if we are going to call upon the name of the Lord in every situation, if we are going to always opt for seeking his strength, we have to remember what he has done. We have to remember his faithfulness. We have to remember that he is this great, powerful God who has always come through on behalf of his people. And it is by remembering, it is by retelling the story of his wondrous works that we are drawn in to trust him. In your life, it is so hard for people to earn your trust, and it is so easy for people to lose your trust. When people fail you, you remember it. And it makes, you, it, makes it hard for you to want to trust them in the future. But when there's someone in your life who you've known has come through for you again and again and again and again, and they've proven that they're faithful. 
then that's the person you call out to when you need help. That's the person you run to when you need to trust somebody. And the same thing is true for God. We remember his works. We retell the story of all that he has done over and over and over again because as we remember, as we retell what he's done, our faith in him rises. When we remember, most especially, that this God has sent his son, Jesus, from heaven to save us, to live a perfect life, to die in the place of sinners, and to rise from the dead, that we are lifted to put our trust in him, to seek our strength from him. That if Jesus triumphed over death, then we can trust him with our life. So when God rewires us, when he puts the pieces back together and recreates our hearts, one of the things he does is he gives us a new disposition to trust him, to reach out to him, to call out to him, to put our faith in him. Uh, But it isn't just the life of faith that we're called to. I said there was two major sort of overarching things this morning. So the life of faith is the first one. But then as we're going to see, the second way that we should live in response to who God is and what he's done is that we live the life of love. We live the life of love. Uh, Just like with faith, before we are born again, we love all the wrong things. What it means when you love the wrong things is that we have our priorities out of order. Before we become a Christian, before our hearts are rewired, before we are born again, we love other things more than we love God, and that is fundamentally what is wrong with the world. What happens when a few billion people are living with their priorities out of order? At best, you get stupidity. At worst, you get atrocity. And so we need to be rewired. We need to be reshaped. We need to be recreated. And Psalm 105 reorients us. It shows us what it is supposed to look like for us to walk in love towards God. That yes, 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 we need to trust God. But also this rewired life is a life of love towards God. And what we learn in verse 1 is that the life of love towards God means that we give Him thanks. We give Him thanks. Our love for God is a thankful love, right? Because we've come to see that everything we have comes from Him. Not only does our birth come from Him, not only does our breath come from Him, but our redemption has come from Him. People like us who deserved wrath have instead received grace. People like us who deserved death have instead received life. People like us who deserve to live under the curse of God have instead, because of Jesus Christ, received all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. We have received so much from him. And so our love is a a thankful love. And the difference between walking in thankful love towards God and not, the difference between having gratitude towards God and not, is the difference between either, on the one hand, living in pride and entitlement, or on the other hand, living in humility and contentment. Uh, Here's the interesting thing about life. Usually, prideful people hate entitled people and vice versa. And this is why. Prideful people look at entitled people and they think, oh, these people just don't want to work for anything. And entitled people look at prideful people and think, man, they they just always act like they're better than everybody else. But in reality, the prideful person and the entitled person actually have a lot more in common than they realize. Both of them are not living a grateful life to God. 
See, a thankful love towards God guards us from entitlement because we realize that God doesn't owe us anything. And a thankful love towards God guards us from pride because when we step back and honestly assess our lives, we realize that everything we've accomplished, all the strength that we've had to get through life, and the final outcome of our lives is based upon God's grace and not based upon anything that we have done. In his uh, book, uh, Ruthless Trust, Brendan Manning tells a story of a woman uh, in an extended care hospital. This is the story he shares. He says, she had some kind of wasting disease. A student of mine happened upon her on a coincidental visit. The student kept going back, drawn by the strange force of the woman's joy. Though she could no longer move her arms and legs, she would say, I'm so happy I can move my neck. When she could no longer move her neck, she would say, I'm just so glad I can hear and see. And when the young student finally asked the old woman what would happen if she lost her sound and sight, the gentle old lady said, I'll just be so grateful that you come and visit. Not a hint of entitlement, not a hint of pride in this beautiful woman. Why? Because she was grateful. She understood the dynamics of God's grace. And so when you and I embrace this sort of grateful love towards God, it both keeps us humble towards other people in our relationships with others, and it also makes us content in all the circumstances that we might find ourselves in. Then in the second half, verse 1, we learn that the life of love towards God means that we make Him known. Uh, it means that we make it, shows that we make Him known. Um. You guys know this. One of the fastest ways to find out what somebody really loves, just to listen to what they talk about. Uh, maybe you've been standing in a circle with people, and uh, someone just you know, sort of just keeps talking about the meal, or just keeps talking about the game, or just keeps talking about the movie. And then they they walk away, and somebody says, "Man, like they really must have loved those crab legs, or you know whatever it is." You know, we 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 understand that we talk about what we love. And uh, I think that it might actually free us up in our, what we call evangelism, if we were to actually think about it as an act of love towards God. That if we were to actually think about our sharing Jesus as simply just doing what we always do with things that we love, which is we share them, we talk about them. Um, I know that evangelism is a hard thing. It's not always easy for us to talk about our faith. I think one of the things that makes it harder for us is that instead of actually talking about God and talking about what he's done and talking about the good news of Jesus, what we actually end up doing is we try to fix people. And so instead of actually declaring the good deeds and the wonderful things that God has done, we end up trying to attack their life and their, the choices that they've made, and we try to tinkle, tinker with them from the outside in. We forget that what actually has to happen to us is we have to be rewired from the inside out. And so instead of actually engaging in evangelism, instead of actually talking to people about Jesus, we end up trying to talk to them about changing themselves, which is actually not the gospel. And so it's really freeing, guys. It's really freeing. Uh, I think evangelism is always going to be hard, okay? But it's really freeing. It, it doesn't have to be paralyzing anymore when we realize a few things. One is that talking about Jesus is just talking about the thing that we love. It's just like the other things in our lives that we love, that we care about, we share them. And that, that's what we do with our God and with the good, the good works that he has accomplished in the world. 
The other thing that really frees us is when we realize that we don't actually have the responsibility of changing the other person's opinion. That that's not our job to, to do that. And then I think the other big thing that helps us sort of freeze us up in talking about Jesus is that our job is actually not to fix the other person. That our message to them is not, here's how you need to fix your life. But our message is simply, guys, here's what Jesus has done. Here's who our God is. And here's his wonderful works that he's done in the world. And so our love is a thankful love. Our love is a sharing love. And then in verse 3... Uh, we learn that what it means to love God, it means that we glory in Him. It means that we rejoice in Him. Verse 3 says this, Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Guys, last year the Braves won the World Series. Also, side note, total has nothing to do with this. So glad the Phillies didn't win the World Series this year. The Braves won the World Series last year. I know I just offended about 10 of you. So glad the Braves won the World Series last year. Listen, I saw people go crazy. People I knew, for example, bought hats and t-shirts just because the Braves won the World Series. People I knew went back and re-watched old baseball games just to revel in the joy of the experience. I saw, with my own eyes, thousands of people lining the streets of Atlanta while a bunch of young 20-something-year-old guys went around on trucks waving at everybody, people dancing, people singing, people elated because a baseball team won the World Series. We might not know how to specifically always define what it means to glory in God, but we certainly know what it means to rejoice in something. We know what it means to let our hearts just be wrapped, to be immersed, to be gripped by the joy of something. And so our love for God is a rejoicing love. When we think about the fact that He is eternal, that He has no beginning and no end, we don't understand that, but it's amazing. When we think about the fact that His knowledge is limitless, His being is limitless, that everything about Him is limitless, and, and because He's limitless, it means He'll never change. He's always, ever, absolutely been perfect, exactly the way He is. And when we think about his sovereignty and his providence in the world, guys, the way he governs the world, the way he holds together the billions and billions and billions of particles, events, peoples, and places, and weaves it all to his perfectly designed ends. When we think about his wisdom, how does God always have the right answer? I don't know. I don't get it. How, do you, how are you able to look at everything that's going on and know exactly what needs to happen? It's unfathomable. When we think about his love, his mercy, that he keeps showing kindness to people who have turned their backs on him so many times, that he keeps running after people who don't want him and who reject him and who throw up a stiff arm in his face. Where, do you, where have you ever seen love like that? Where have you ever seen mercy like that? We are gripped by his word. We're, worked by his, we're gripped by his will, by his works. We see who this great God is, and, it, and, and we marvel. This is why we needed our hearts to be rewired so that we could actually see God as the most glorious thing in the universe. And when we see him as the most glorious thing in the universe, when we see the wonders of who he is, then that natural instinct just kicks in. We know, we know, we know how to rejoice in something. And when God is this glorious, wonderful object in our sights, we will do it. We will rejoice in him. And see, this is the thing. 
all these different aspects of, of how we're supposed to love God, they're actually all interconnected. It is so much easier to share God if we are totally immersed and enamored in who he is. It is so much easier to share the gospel of Jesus Christ if every day our hearts are just wrapped and gripped and rejoicing and glorying in it. It's like the, the winning the World Series when you're just immersed in it, when you've let your heart just revel and marvel and chew and sit in it. It's just easy to talk about. It's easy to want to share it with other people. And so we have this grateful and sharing love mainly because we have a rejoicing love. And as we rejoice in God, we find it easier to do these other things. And then in verse 4, uh, we learn that the life of God means that we seek his presence. We've already kind of talked about this from another angle, but verse 4, let me just read it again. It says, seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. We talked about seeking God from the standpoint of needing strength, and that is true. But here's the mistake we can make. The mistake that we can make is somehow thinking that God is a means to some other end. That the reason we have our quiet time every day is to sort of get refueled up to then go and accomplish something else. When in reality, honestly, guys, this, the whole point of the sermon is summed up in this one verse. Yes, we seek his strength. Yes, God is the means of life. Yes, God provides everything we need. But God himself is actually the ultimate end. That he is both how we get through life and he is where we're headed in life. He's the means and he's the end. Um, you know, we, we, we know in relationships that the people who we love most, we love to be with most. And when we're away from them, we miss them. When we have to go through the holidays without them, it, it hurts. And so it makes sense that this love that we have towards God is a seeking love. That if our hearts are enamored with him, we'll want him. It will be magnetized. We will desire to pursue time in his presence. And if we're honest, when we get away from spending time in his presence and God makes that known to us, we don't have to fear running back. We don't have to be afraid that if somehow he's going to hurt us. No, when we realize that we've neglected him, when we realize that we haven't given him the time that we should, no, we run back into his presence because that is where life is supposed to be lived. And then down at the end of this psalm, verses 45, in verse 45, uh, where we left off last week, we learned that, that love towards God means that we obey him. Love towards God means that we obey him. I just want to read verses 43 to 45 again. It says, So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toils. That, here's, that's an important statement there, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. If we get honest about all that God's done for us, and we have a grateful love towards him, when we're filled with the joy of who he is, when being in his presence is just Christmas morning to us, and it's just the best thing that we could possibly think of, then it means that we'll also have an honoring love, that we'll revere him, that we'll respect him, that we'll want to do what he says. Jesus said this in John 14, 15. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. He's not somehow going back on his gracious work. 
It's not like Jesus is on his way on the, to the cross to die for sinners, but then he's saying, no, 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 but by the way, it's actually based on your obedience. That's, that can't be what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is that, no, 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 when you realize what I'm doing for you, when you realize how I've loved you, when you realize how secure you really are in my grace and in my love, you will, you will want to honor me. You will want to respect me. You will be so overwhelmed with my goodness that to do what I say will only make sense. And you'll trust, you'll trust finally that what I say is actually for your good, that the commands in my word are the best path of life. And then finally this morning, uh, we skipped chapter, or we skipped, skipped verse 2 as we were kind of working through the top part, but I knew we would kind of come back to it at the end. Um, in verse 2 and in verse 45, we see love towards God means that we praise Him. It means that we praise Him. Verse 2 says, sing to Him, sing praises to Him, tell of His wondrous works. And then the psalm ends in verse 45, sort of doubling down, sort of saying, praise the Lord. It's, really, it's the word hallelujah. That's what, that's, what, that's what we see there at the end of the psalm. The life of love is a life of praise to God. We exalt Him. We, we, we lift Him up. We magnify His name. See, guys, before we were, we were rewired, before we were born again, we didn't understand worship. We didn't understand praising God. We certainly didn't see why He deserved to be praised. And we didn't have the motivations or the affections to want to praise him. But then God comes in. He fixes us. He transforms us. He recreates us from the inside out. And in our love for him now with new hearts, we want to rejoice in him. We want to praise him. We want to exalt him because he's worthy. Last week, we asked this question, how do we get to heaven? And we spent the whole sermon answering that question. But really, as important it is for us to know how, do we, how we get to heaven what we were really doing last week is we were just celebrating who God is. That if we're going to get to heaven, it's by His grace, and that means His grace is unbelievable. If we're going to get to heaven, it's going to be through His power, and that means His power is unbelievable. If we're going to get to heaven, it's going to be through His sovereignty, and that means His sovereignty is unbelievable. If we're going to get to heaven, it's going to be through His provision, and that means His love and mercy and compassion in our lives is more than we can fathom. We were just simply celebrating who God is. And so if we get the answer right to how do we get to heaven then we will also acknowledge that the best part of being in heaven will be God himself. That the reason we spend time thinking about how we get to heaven is so that we might praise the God of heaven. This life of love towards God. It's a thankful love because we realize all that he's done for us that we could not do for ourselves. It's a sharing love because we always share what we love. We always talk about what we love. It's a rejoicing love because we have seen the glory of our God and we see that there's an eternity of wonderful, heart-gripping, immersive meditation to chew on and enjoy forever and ever and ever. This love towards God is a rejoicing love, is a thankful love, is a sharing love. It is a honoring love. We say, whatever you say, Lord, I'll do it. Whatever your word says, I'll obey it. If this is who you are, if this is what you've done for me, I'm in. And this love is a praising love because we see he's worthy of it. He's worthy to be exalted, to be lifted up, to be worshipped forever. So what does Psalm 105 do, the whole package? What does it do? Psalm 105 shows us both who God is and it shows us who we are. 
Who is God? He is faithful. He is gracious. He is loving. He is sovereign. He is powerful. He is wise. He's compassionate. He is the one true living God. And so who are we in response? How should we live if we've been rescued, if we've been reborn, if we've been rewired? How should we live? Well, we live a life of faith and we live a life of love. We live a life of thanks and gratitude <laughs> and we live a life of obedience. We live a life of sharing who he is and we live a life of running into his presence and enjoying who he is. This is what it means to be human, to live in relationship with God, to walk with Him, to receive our life from Him, and then to pour our praise back to Him. This is what it means to be human. Let's pray. Lord God, the life of faith and the life of love, uh, they are not natural to us. Uh, they do not arise from that which is within us. And so we need you to change our hearts. And then, Lord, even after you've changed our hearts, even after we've been born again, we need your continual present grace to stir up the waters of faith for us to be able to see that you are the trustworthy anchor, that nothing will make you crack, that with you our lives can hold. And then, Lord, to pursue this life of love, to be able to see your beauty, to see your glory, to see that you are the one that our hearts were made to sing about, to see that you are the hallelujah of life. And so, Lord, we pray that you would work in us, open the eyes of our heart, to see who you are, to see what you've done, that we might be drawn to trust you and to love you forever and ever. It's in Jesus' name that we worship and pray.